Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. All right, here we go. All right, so Advent series. And I don't know if you can see the small uh, print on our little uh, graphic here, but it says the season of hope. And so uh, we're going to be talking about hope and peace this morning. Hope and peace, uh, because our Advent uh, series is a little shorter than what typically is done, uh, I'm sort of doubling up on them, and uh, Jerry's going to do one next week. We're sort of going to skip joy this year, but that's okay. Uh, hopefully, you guys will feel the joy on Christmas when the kids all sing joy to the world. So we'll, we'll, we'll get joy in there. It'll be at the last minute, uh, but we'll get, we'll get there. So uh, that's right. <laughs> it's all joy. That's right. So this is the time of year many uh, Christians celebrate Advent, and I didn't grow up in a tradition that celebrated Advent, um, and I know some of you in the room did, so that's, that's great, and um, we, we've talked about that a little bit uh, yesterday at our holiday party. I wanted to share a little bit about the background to Advent. The word Advent itself comes from the Latin, Adventus, which means coming, and many of us are more familiar with the Greek word that instead of the Latin word there, parousia, uh, it's the word that gets used in the Bible for the... Uh, second coming of Jesus, the next coming, uh, waiting for that. So uh, originally Advent was a time of fasting and prayer that surrounded a yearly baptism time uh, at Epiphany. And Epiphany was celebrated in early January, and it was uh, basically meant to be a commemoration of when the wise men came and gave gifts uh, to Jesus. And then later, Christians viewed Advent as preparation and waiting for the second coming of Jesus, and it wasn't actually until the Middle Ages when uh, Advent got fully associated with Jesus's first coming, his birth, and the waiting that happened uh, for his first coming. Now, in modern times, uh, there's usually either a four-week tradition for Advent or a six-week tradition for Advent. Like I said, we're doing like a two-week tradition for Advent here this year, uh, thanks to Ephesians. Um, and uh, usually uh, the four-week version begins the last Sunday in November, which would have been a couple weeks ago. And the four weeks are usually associated with the burning of candles in the Advent wreath. And I wanted to show the slide that we showed last year, I think. Do you have the, the Advent wreath here? Yep, there it is. So there are four candles, uh, one for hope, one for peace, one for joy, one for love. And then there's the, what's called the Christ candle in the center, which you light. Uh, on Christmas. And so the whole idea about uh, the Advent wreath and about lighting candles and about thinking about these things is that um, it's you can't quickly light a candle. You can't just like immediately light a candle. It takes time, it takes thought, it takes preparation. And so it's meant to be a reflective exercise, a thoughtful, um, intentional exercise, remembering uh, the things that God has given us through Christ. And um, so that's the whole idea behind the candles. Um, so now, in light of that, uh, no pun intended on light, um, I have an activity for us. I've got pieces of paper, and I'm going to hand them out. And I'm going to hand out some pens if anyone needs pens. So raise your hand if you need pens. I'll be around here in a second. All right, so this is what this is what we used to we call force fun, force fun. Uh, hopefully, y'all enjoy this as much as I do. 
All right, so you should be getting a half sheet of paper, and if you don't have a pen, you should be getting a pen as well. Thank you to Megan and Dan for your help. Uh, hopefully we have enough. I brought like a small percentage of the pens I have at home. My wife is a pen hoarder. Uh, she will probably rebuke me for saying that in public, but <clears throat> the truth sets you free. I believe that. So, um, so that's a, thank you, Dan and Megan. All right. So you have a piece of paper, you have two columns and those of you at home here, I'll, I'll steal one here so you can see what's going on. I'll put it up. So if you want to at home do the same thing, you just take a piece of paper and you just draw like a, a T basically, or, you know, two, two columns. And what I want you to do is on the left hand column on the, where you'd put the title, I want you to put Christmas, put Christmas. And I want you to take, let's just take a minute or a minute and a half. And I want you to write down what you think you need to do between now and Christmas. So buy presents, wrap presents, uh, go on errands, pick up food, cook food, prepare for guests, whatever it is, just, you know, jot down like five, seven, eight things. Some of you are like, it's like 20 things. Okay, well, jot down as many of those as you want to in the next 90 seconds. We'll take some time here. Caleb, do you have a sheet back there? No, do you want one? You're good? Are you sure you're good? You're gonna have to do this. I'm gonna give this to you for homework then. You're gonna get the punchline though, so it's okay. Some of you might have longer lists than others. That's fine. I like getting to use my old teacher tactics from time to time. You know, I taught school for three years and there's just something magical about making a whole room of people do something that they don't want to do. It's just, um, I miss this feeling. Thanks for letting me bring it back today. I appreciate it. Some of you may know where I'm going with this, but hopefully we haven't ruined it too much. How are we doing? I think we're slowing down a little bit here. Okay, so now on the right-hand side, on the right-hand column, so up, up here at the top, I want you to write the word Jesus. And we're going to write only four things underneath Jesus. Can anyone guess? Hope, peace, joy, and love. For me, the point of this exercise is not to say that the things on the left-hand side are wrong or immoral or um, that you shouldn't do them. Um, that's not the point I'm trying to make. Uh, the point that I want to make about the season, Advent, and about the Christmas season generally, is that if we are doing the things on the left-hand side, without the things on the right-hand side, then we are missing the entire point. If there's anything on the left-hand side of the, of the sheet that makes you lose anything on the right-hand side of the sheet, I'm going to encourage you to leave it behind. Right? All right. Cool. I think we get the point here. We're going to focus today on uh, peace. We're going to talk a little bit about hope, but we're going to focus mostly on peace. And uh, when we think about the New Testament, the New Testament is in Greek, and the word for peace is arene. 
Uh, it's not Shalom, but the idea, this was a, uh, this whole book is a Eastern Hebrew minded book. And so their understanding, they used the Greek word arene because that's the language that they used at the time the New Testament was written. But the, com the uh, concept behind that is Shalom. We talked about Shalom during our kingdom series, but I just wanted to bring back some information on Shalom here. Uh, the word uh, means completeness, soundness, welfare, and peace. So when we think about uh, peace, we sometimes think about like the absence of war, or sometimes we think about like inner peace and like inner tranquility. But really, uh, there's more to this word than that. Biblical peace has deeper layers than just the absence of war. Um, it's, it's deeper than just inner peace. It is those things, but it's more than those things. And so the deeper layers here is that we have a friendship and a relationship with God and with others. Uh, completeness, soundness, health, and prosperity. That is sort of what rounds out this figure of what Shalom is. Now, one of the aspects of the name given to the Davidic king in Isaiah 9, which is a popular passage this time of year, right, is the Davidic king is called the Prince of Peace. 2 Thessalonians 3.16 mentions the Lord of peace, and it's an ambiguous usage of the word Lord. Uh, it might be God, and it might be Jesus. Uh, we can't be 100% sure either way, but I can confidently say that grace and peace are sent from both the Father and the Son in every opening of every epistle. So clearly, Jesus is a Lord of peace. And Jesus exemplified peace in all of its facets. We're going to spend our time in Mark chapter 5 this morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5 and join me, you certainly can. But if not, we will have all the scriptures on the board uh, this morning like we usually do. And what I want to do uh, walking through this record is reflect on how um, one person... Actually, it's a couple people, but we're going to focus for the first part here on the woman with the issue of blood. How one person encountered Jesus, and when she encountered Jesus, she received shalom. That's what we're going to be looking at. And then, of course, there's Jairus and his daughter and what happens there, which we're not going to minimize that either. So there's sort of two different records here, um, mingling here hope and, and this idea of shalom or peace. So let's start reading here. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about, about him, and he was beside the sea. Uh, real, just real quick, I'm going to back up for a second. Um, Jesus had just been in, on another side of the sea, uh, and he had just cast out a whole bunch of spirits from the person who's called Legion in the Bible. So, um, so you know, it, it, it's go, he's going from like one major thing to another major thing. Um, and Mark, as he typically does, just like completely understates this. He's just like, he just goes the other side of the sea. Okay. All right. Verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he, Jesus went with him, Jairus. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So right then, the moment she touches, let's, let's pay attention to this. She gets healed. She gets physical healing. Verse 30. 
And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Verse 31, the disciples call him out on this. This is ridiculous. And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? He's around all these different people, and and you're going to ask, Who touched you? Jesus, this is crazy. Verse 32, And he, Jesus, looked around to see who had done it. Verse 33, but the woman, knowing what had happened, what hap- happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in what? Peace and be healed of your disease. So let's think about this for a little bit. Uh, Jesus, he, 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 you have to think about from his perspective for a moment here, Jesus is dealing with pressure from all sides. Um, you know, he has a man coming to him so he can heal his daughter. Uh, he's just come out of the situation where he's healed this guy who is demon possessed, who lived in caves and all sorts of weird stuff was going on with this guy named Legion. Uh, the crowds are literally waiting for him when he gets off the boat and comes back onto the side of the sea. And so I don't know about you, but when I've dealt uh, with a man who's been possessed and lived in caves and done all this crazy stuff and that I've just healed him and I've gotten in a boat and I've come over to the other side of the sea, I want like a snack and a nap and like prop my feet up and watch some college football or something, right? Now, is that what Jesus does? No, he immediately gets out the boat and he doesn't have time for any of that because he's got a crowd pressing around him. And then a guy comes up to him and says, hey, my daughter needs healing. And what does Jesus do? Does Jesus say, hey, no, man, look, I'm really tired. I'm worn out. I just did this incredible spiritual battle with this guy on the other side of the sea. And, you know, I'll come see your daughter tomorrow. Does he do that? No. He immediately starts going with the guy. So, uh, you know, if we think, you know, I, I, I love talking to people this time of year, especially, and be like, oh, how's it going? Oh, man, I'm really busy right now. Yeah, we're all busy. But if you think that you're busier than Jesus was, <laughs> we need to rethink and reconsider that, I think. All right, so he's got this guy, Jairus. He's got a daughter who needs help. Jesus is following along with him. Now we've got the woman with the issue of blood. She's been dealing with this for 12 years. Uh, what's really interesting about 12 years here is uh, the Bible tells us that's how old Jairus' daughter is. So she's been dealing with this issue as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. She's been waiting for healing. Now, can you imagine, now I'm not a woman, I've never dealt with hemorrhaging of blood, and I'm just going to leave it there. You can understand what I'm saying there. Uh, I've never, I couldn't imagine being a woman just in general dealing with normal womanly things in the ancient Near East. Can you imagine that? Even you women probably can, can imagine that better than I can, but I cannot imagine how difficult that would have been in that culture at that time uh, with, with uh, the things, the technology that they had and the ways that they had to do things that would have been way more difficult than dealing with it, even the normal spectrum of that in modern times, right? But now she's dealing with this continuously for 12 years. We don't need to imagine anything else to know that she had a difficult life, that she likely struggled with peace. But I want to point out to you that it's not just the fact that she had to deal with this issue of blood, hemorrhaging of blood. It's, it's adding insult to injury to note that she would have been ceremonially unclean this entire time. Uh, that she would have had to live outside the city this entire time. That she would not have been able to have normal relationships this entire time. In the parallel passage in, in Luke, Joel Green says this in his commentary. 
He says, although her physical condition was not contagious, her ritual condition was, with the consequence that she had lived in isolation from her community these 12 years. Her unenviable life situation is only underscored dramatically by this use of the word 12, indicating she has suffered during the whole of the life of Jairus' daughter. Her prospects for renewed social intercourse had dropped to nil with her lack of help from the physicians. And then he points out the previous record, just as the garrison uh, demoniac, uh, whose legion, even though he had, just as he had lived among the dead, so this woman exists outside the boundaries of the socially alive in her community. The press of the crowds guarantees that she will infect others with her impurity and her aim to touch Jesus is a premeditated act that will pass her uncleanness on to him. Not just other people in the crowd, but pass her uncleanness on to Jesus himself. So let's put ourselves again in her shoes for a moment. You've been sick for 12 years. During that time, you've had incredibly limited social interaction with other people. Maybe you've interacted with people from afar like lepers or other people outside of the community, but you're living outside the gates, outside the town, limited interaction with people. Just like a leper, you suffer alone outside the city or town. No one can help you. You continue to deal with this issue alone. You begin to lose hope. This woman had no hope. And then one day you hear about a faith healer, or is he a prophet? No one knows what to think about this guy, but his name is Jesus. He's coming through your area. Maybe he can heal me, she thinks. You travel to where he is, knowing that he's around crowds, taking the risk of physical contact with others, just to see if you can get close to him without causing anyone else to be unclean because you're not trying to cause a fuss. You're not trying to be a problem. You're not trying to be a burden. You just want to get help. You, you just want to uh, experience the miracle that you need. But when you see where he is, your heart drops. He's surrounded by a crowd. But even worse, the man that's closest to Jesus is Jairus, and he's a leader in the synagogue. Someone who would especially hate being unclean. So what do you do? Well, she decided to take a leap of faith. She did what she had to do to touch the hem of his garment. And because of that, she received healing. She received physical wholeness, uh, which would have meant the restoration of her life in the community. But I want to point out that she didn't receive shalom until after she talked to Jesus. She was physically healed, but she didn't receive the wholeness and the shalom that God wanted to offer her until she heard the words of love that Jesus had for her. That's when she received shalom. She got her physical healing the moment she touched the hem of his garment. She didn't make him unclean. By touching the clean, she made herself clean. She didn't pass her uncleanness on, which is what the law would have said would have happened. Instead, his cleanness was enough to overcome her uncleanness. But with the words that he gave to her in verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, go in shalom and be healed of your disease. It's total restoration that Jesus had in mind. And that's what she received with his loving words of forgiveness that he passed on to her. So that's not where the story ends for Jesus. He's, that encounter with Jesus has given her total completeness and peace. But Jesus isn't done yet. He's got another family that he's going to give shalom to. Let's keep reading in verse 35. While he was yet speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? I'm going to pause here for a second. 
whew, man, this is going to be hard. Um, I put myself in Jairus's shoes here, and uh, man, it's even hard to think about. Hannah, in this context, um, my five-year-old daughter, um, I can see Jesus, or Jairus opening his mouth and turning to Jesus, about to say, um, it's okay, you don't need to come anymore, Master. Jesus interrupts him. He says, verse 36, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to him, said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, the three that, they, that he mentioned, and went in where the, little child, where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So, What's interesting about this is Jesus arrives on the scene and he takes specific action to increase the peace in the situation. <laughs> he sees all the commotion, all the stuff going on. And he's like, nope, we're going to make this situation more peaceful. So he throws some people out. Do you think we can learn from what Jesus does here? Jesus goes to the mountaintop to pray. He goes to the quiet place to seek God, uh, his father. And here he wants an environment where he can hear the voice of his father, the voice of peace. So... We think about this, um, you know, he, uh, he comes into the situation, he makes it more peaceful, he makes it so that he can hear his father's voice, and then he brings peace, completeness, wholeness to this household. He changes this little girl's life. He gives her a second chance at life, in fact. When I think about this whole narrative, uh, at various times we can place ourselves in the shoes of different people in the story. Sometimes we're playing the part of Jesus, and that's not weird. That's not idolatrous. Sometimes we're the ones that are ministering and serving on behalf of our God and on behalf of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's cool, and that's the role that we're in, in the situation that we're dealing with. Uh, but that's not always the role that we will play in situations like this. Because sometimes we're Jairus. Sometimes we're the one who just has the ability to say, hey, let's get God involved and we pray with people for the situation, or we reach out to someone who's particularly gifted in whatever we need at that particular time. Uh, we take action for someone else. We get someone involved in a situation that affects us, but it's not us. You know, Jairus's problem was not that he was sick, it was that his daughter was sick. So he went and got the help that he needed. Sometimes we're like that. We hear about a situation, uh, someone's dealing with something, and we say, hey, I'm going to pray with you, but let's also get so-and-so involved. And that's a helpful thing to do. But sometimes, sometimes we're the woman with the issue of blood. Sometimes we're the one dealing with whatever the issue is. And we're also dealing with the emotional uh, ramifications of that. We're the ones dealing with the anxiety. We're the ones dealing with the doubt. We're the ones dealing with the issue itself. And we're the ones who are isolated by the secret problems or the secret battles that we are fighting. And in these moments, what we need to do is reach out and touch the hem of his garment. 
We need to reach out to our Father, our God, in prayer. We need to bring someone else into the situation to help us face the battle that we are facing. And the point is that none of us are are truly alone. The reason why we come together as a church community is to be a community of faith, a group of people who want to stand together with love and not judgment. So again, I want to point back to our sheets from earlier. During this time of year, most of the people that we come into contact with are solely interested, whether they're nominal Christians or or Christians or not Christians, people that just celebrate Christmas to celebrate Christmas because it's a, it's a societal thing at this point. Most people are concerned with the left side of the piece of paper during this time of year. Uh, there's so much to do. We got to buy the presents. We got to wrap the presents. We got to do this. We got to get ready for the people. We got to do that, right? We, li- we fill our lives with all these things and all the events so much that we don't have time to get peaceful. We don't have time to breathe. We don't have time to think. And it's easy, I'm going to say it's easy to be busy. It's more comfortable to be busy because then we don't have to stop and think about all the things that are deeper in life. And sometimes it's easier to just rush around and uh, have all the commotion and not think about things. It's much harder to calm down, to take a deep breath and simply be with God. And that's what I'm encouraging this season is that we do more of that, that we do more of the right-hand side and focus maybe a little bit less on that left-hand side of the sheet. Uh, when I think about hope, um, one of the simple examples I can give is uh, the hope that I had as a kid uh, when we got uh, s- snow on the calendar, possibly. And, you know, you're thinking maybe we'll get a snow day from school tomorrow. And I grew up in the south. I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. So snow days were pretty few and far between. Uh, for those who in our in our church who are homeschooled, I was talking to Caleb earlier. He was like, man, we're homeschooled. I don't know if we get any. We've got like one snow day my entire life. And I was like, man, just be thankful you're homeschooled though. <laughs> uh, so anyway, you know, thinking about growing up in Little Rock, we didn't get a lot of snow days, but sometimes, you know, snow would pop up and this is what I would look look like, right? This is what you look like. The night before, the morning of, you're like, man, is this enough snow to derail this whole school thing from happening for me today, right? So this is, this is what it would look like. This is what I would do. How much hope, if you put yourself back in the shoes where you did that maybe when you were a kid, how much hope did you experience the night before a potential snow day? Did some of you have trouble sleeping the night before a snow day? I know I did, right? Because you're so excited that maybe I won't have to go to school and maybe I'll get to play in the snow all day, right? I'd like to analogize that to the people running around with only the right hand or the left hand side of the sheet on Christmas. That's the best hope they've got. The best hope they have is maybe they'll get a snow day. Uh, Maybe the economy will eventually get a little bit better. Maybe they'll be able to afford a house someday. Um, Maybe uh, their job will get better at some point or the person that they uh, are dating, maybe they'll eventually propose to them or something, right? Like maybe life will get marginally better. And I'm not trying to minimize these things. These things are important things. They're important things. But when you compare a snow day against eternal life in the kingdom of God, which one is a bigger, more powerful hope? If you think about the things on the left-hand side of the sheet about uh, buying presents and, and, and wrapping them and doing all this stuff, even though it's for the people we love, I get it, that stuff doesn't matter like love and joy and peace and hope does, right? And so 
what we have to offer people during this time of year and really at any time is for them to encounter their Lord, for them to encounter Jesus, for them to have this life-changing experience whereby they actually have a real hope now, a hope that means something now. It's not like a snow day, which might or might not come and might or not, may or may not be as, as good as you thought it was going to be. Maybe your brothers don't go outside with you during a snow day. Maybe they do go outside and they just throw a bunch of snowballs at you and you just get mad at them. Maybe the snow day isn't all that it was cracked up to be. But the coming kingdom of God is everything that it's cracked up to be and way more than we could ever imagine. So because of our hope, because of us, our understanding of what God's plan is, his plan to unite all things to himself through Christ, we have this great hope of what, what God's going to do on this restored earth. And because of that, because of that hope, we can experience different aspects of that peace, that there's that inner peace, that inner certainty, knowing what God's plan and purpose is, and that's good, that's going to come to pass, um, and all the other, the completeness and the wholeness and the transformation and all the things that come with that. I just want to point out that, that those of us who have been genuinely touched by God and by our Lord Jesus Christ, we have a responsibility to share that hope. Uh, take the imagery of the Advent, calendar, uh, the Advent wreath and the candles. You have your candle lit. People are running around with their candles not lit. All it takes is for you to get close to them with the light and with the love. And then their candle might come on. That's what it takes. It's as simple as that. One simple way we can think about this is that while we're doing the things on the left-hand side, because I know we're going to do them, we're going to go out, we're going to buy presents. I'm going to go out with Diane this Wednesday and buy presents for the Wayside families, some of the Wayside families we've got. Uh, we're going to do those things. But as we do those things, a simple way to reset our thinking and not be so busy and still get the stuff done that we need to get done, but, but do it with the love and the joy and the peace as well, and the hope. One way to do that is just to be present while we're doing this. Not to go on autopilot, not to be focused on just what I need to do, but to, to look for people around us who might be struggling with this time of year as they're doing the same things, checking off the same boxes. If we can be present, then perhaps we will notice when someone's having a rough day. And if we see that there's someone's going through a rough day, we can just ask them, hey, are you okay? Are you doing all right? We can encourage them by simply smiling at them. And as we pray and as we go about these kinds of things, sometimes what will happen is the door will open up for you to share the gospel with them. And that could completely turn their life upside down. Perhaps the only thing that you can do is make their day slightly better. And I encourage you to do that where you can. But of course, our ultimate goal is that we want people to experience the real meaning of this season, which is our Lord, which is Jesus. And so when we get the opportunity to do that, it's, it's incredibly exciting. So that's what I've been meditating on, is that when we, when we have this opportunity, we have this amazing hope, we have this, this peace, this completeness, this wholeness because of what Christ has done for us, that this is a powerful thing for us to pass on to other people. And so I, that's my encouragement um, during this Advent season, is for us to slow down, for us to focus on the things on the right-hand side of the sheet, and we can still get the left side done, as long as we're focusing on the right-hand side of the sheet and to bring that light to other people. Let's pray together, church. Father, we thank you for um, the amazing peace and hope that you've given us through Christ, for um, 
for just how amazing it is that we can we can walk around and we can be your uh, be your people and share that hope and that peace with other people. God, sometimes we fill the role of your son Jesus in these conversations and you help us when we do. You show us what's going on and how we can help fix it. And you give us your spirit and your abilities through the spirit so that we can um, minister to people. We can help them experience that hope and that peace in that moment. Father, sometimes we're gyrus and we, we don't know uh, how to fix things, but we do know who to get to help. And we're thankful for people um, in your son's body who we can stand alongside and, and, and run to for help and get help when we need help. Father, we're so thankful that you put us in community and help us to know when we need to seek other people in that community for help. And Father, sometimes we are the woman with the issue of blood, and we just need help, and uh, we don't have peace, and we don't have hope in the moment, and we need help with those things. And Father, we're thankful that you know our frame, you remember that we're dust, and you know that that's okay. That we can go through moments where we are without hope and without peace, or we feel without hope and without peace. So Father, thank you for meeting us in our weakness, for uh, helping us uh, in those times, and for encouraging us in those moments to reach out and touch the hem of your son's garment. Father, we're thankful for the ability to do that, the ability to, um, to have access to you through your son Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslu.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.